Thanks for listening to Marketing B2B Tech, the podcast from Napier where you can find out what really works in B2B marketing today. Welcome to the latest episode of Marketing B2B Technology, the podcast from Napier. Today I'm joined by Jose Palomino. He's the founder and CEO of ValueProp. Welcome to the podcast, Jose. Mike, glad to be here. Great. So, Jose, um, you're interesting. I mean, your career has really been in sales and helping companies grow sales. So, you know, to start off with, can you talk the listeners through, you know, your career journey and how you've got to where you are today? Oh, sure. And, and I will give you the Extreme Reader's Digest version because it's it's been a while. So, But, <laughs> but it started out in, in kind of back office operations and financial service companies that gravitated into uh, more roles in IT and eventually even into uh, IT-based businesses uh, where I actually started out as, as a technical support on sales and then moving into actually, as they say here, you know, carrying a bag, actually a quota carrying salesperson. From that, I moved into more marketing roles and uh, really got an exposure to both sides, mostly in high tech, but certainly all B2B, right? So the sales side, the marketing side, bringing those things together, acting as a CMO as well, and then starting my firm, uh, Value Prop, about 15 years ago, uh, specifically because I saw this this real, almost strange, uh, not even dichotomy, but a trichotomy between strategy, marketing, and sales. And you had different folks and organizations handling each of those, and occasionally not often, but occasionally talking to one another. And so my journey has been doing that. And in, in the better part of the last 15 years has been more in that mid-market category size business where the leadership team reside in the same building or in the same offices. And that's a lot more fun because you can actually start bringing those things together and working together to create uh, you know, some really exciting outcomes. In very large corporate, those things are very separated and as an outsider coming in, you're not going to bridge those divides. Those are hardwired into the culture of a very large company. Interesting. So you're, you're trying to get three groups of people in the same building to talk to each other. That's that's kind of the business model, is it? Yeah, essentially, yes. <laughs> if you have, and if it's an owner-led business, which is a little easier to work with, right? In that case, you have, you know, certainly the owner's going to be involved in all those conversations. But then really helping the owner see that, well, you do want operations speaking into your strategy. You do want your sales speaking into your strategy. You want your marketing. And, and often they don't have a very sophisticated marketing side of things. They may have more sales investment than they do marketing in those kind of companies. But you have to get those things together and start thinking about what's really going to help you stand out. What we call get a competitive edge uh, in, your, in your space. And there's a lot of things that get into that, but that's really what we want uh, companies to focus on is that edge. And, and we use the picture of um, Usain Bolt, you know, the most aptly named athlete ever, right? And he's, uh, the, you know, arguably the fastest man alive, 100 meter, you know, world record holder and so on. And when he wins a race, he wins by fractional seconds. That's it, by fractional seconds, which is amazing when you think about it. And when he wins the race, and this is the part I always like to make uh, clear about what the power of a competitive edge is when you're working all these things together, is the fact that you win the whole gold medal. 
Usain doesn't look down from the top of the podium and break his medal in half and give half of it to the second place winner. They get their own medal. They don't get the gold. And in business competition, you just got to be good enough to win. Uh, the, the, there'll be somebody second place and they'll get the phone call that says, boy, you were really close. But, you know, we went with the other guy. And you know what you get with that really close? You get nothing. You get squat. And that's what you get being really close. So the competitive edge is the ability to win more consistently, even if it's by a very, as they say, the hair on your chinny, chin, chin, right? By the slightest margin, that's okay. You just have to excel enough in areas that matter to your customer and pull everything together so that you actually win more often uh, in that way. And then when you do, you actually get growth as a result because you're winning more consistently. That makes so much sense. You know, it, it doesn't matter so much how much you win by, just winning matters. But, you know, I, I think everyone sees it's obvious that collaborating, particularly collaboration between marketing and sales is, uh, you know, clearly going to help you win more frequently. Why do you think it doesn't happen in companies? <laughs> That's one of those. Well, let's put it this way. It's like one of those things that like everyone knows that eating more salad is probably better for you. And and the salad with bacon on it is not as good for you. But yet, yet we find that that the bacon consumption is uh, still quite high, right? So yeah. the reality is things can make a lot of obvious sense. And, and intellectually, no one is going to sit in a room and say, oh, no, we don't think we need to collaborate. But I think the reasons are, 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 are multifaceted. But the, the obvious ones that come to me is this. Marketing has a, a, li a different time horizon that they work under. That's one thought. They're looking at this year, next year, and beyond, right? They're looking at kind of bigger picture things. They have a lot of near-term activities. And modern marketing, especially digital-based marketing, is more real-time. But it's still being measured and, and looked at in terms of its major thrust over a longer time horizon, typically, than sales. Sales is often, depending on the organization, has to produce like on a monthly basis. The pressure is monthly. In fact, I know some very large software companies where they do, uh, they are doing a weekly stand and deliver meeting justifying their numbers, uh, you know, to like very senior management. So you have two people living kind of in almost like one of those sci-fi movies where the two two folks at different dimensions, you know, they're, they're like parallel universes, but slightly out of sync with each other from a time perspective. The other thing is that also uh, there's a very human uh, desire to blame shift when things don't work out well. So sales is able to say, listen, if you gave us better pricing, if you gave us a better bundle, if you gave us some better lead gen support, if you gave us some better uh, supporting videos like our competitor have, they have some incredible demo videos and, and marketing hasn't produced that for us. So all these reasons why we're somehow falling uh, short is built into how sales might look at things. On the other hand, marketing is saying, look, we're giving people golden, you know, grade A level leads. We bought the database. We're using it. We have we have our inside salespeople working those leads. We know these are good appointments there. They just have to execute. They just have to close. So you have this time dilation effect where you're on different time horizons. And then you also have like a built-in kind of uh, escape valve, so to speak, because you don't have to take full responsibility. By the way, I'm not saying that's a good thing. That's a very bad thing, but it happens all the time. And I think the third thing is just the whole idea of two, like who owns the revenue? And, and you know, who who is going to be 
kind of like on college, you know, uh, college athletes, uh, the whole idea is that you get to wear the, you know, the, the jacket, your team jacket. So you're the big man on campus. Who's really making revenue happen? If you talk to somebody in sales, they say, look, it's all, it's all sales all the time. I mean, we have to close it. And if you talk to marketing and say, look, we're opening markets for you. We're, we're, we're paving the way. You can't succeed without us. And both statements are true, but there is this idea of a competition internally to get credit. So you have your different time horizons, you have built-in blame shifting, and you have also, uh, you know, kind of a motivation to glory hog for successes. As they say, successes have many fathers, right? That's the idea. So those are all things that need to get resolved with, I think, some real honest conversation about defining how winning looks like and where the win is going to come from. And then you start thinking about it more systemically or systematically that these things have to work together, not at odds. But again, everything I've described to you is decades of experience in some very large organizations where I've seen firsthand how these two, they're not even in the same location. They meet when they have to meet, but they kind of each do their own thing. I'm talking about with large staffs, large budgets, and very separated. So when I see this in smaller companies, Mike, it drives me crazy. I'd say like, dude, you're not like a Google or a Microsoft. You're like a $30 million manufacturing uh, company. Why aren't you on the same page? There's absolutely no reason you can't be on the same page. You literally go to the same uh, the same cafeteria to get coffee right down the hallway. So you should be on the same page and you have to kind of break down some of these internal barriers. Interesting. I, I mean, I totally agree, particularly with the, you know, the idea that sales and marketing like blaming each other when things go wrong. I mean, that's never a, a good relationship builder. Um, I, I'm interested, you then bring strategy in. Is, is strategy the thing that, that gets the two sides working together? Or is that, you know, another complication? How do you find uh, bringing the strategy element? Yeah, so strategy is is the glue or the better better looked at as the foundation, right? It's it's what you build on, right? So it's almost like there's a foundation laid, which is your strategy, and you have two like buildings going up. One is called the marketing building, one's the sales building. We we want to break that down. We want to say, no, we lay one foundation, it's one building, it's called revenue. We have to make sales happen. So you start with the strategic considerations, with, with the most obvious one is your value proposition, right? So what is it that you're doing? that's in any way, shape or form, special, distinct, important, not to you, because what happens, especially in technology companies, Mike, as I'm sure you've seen many times, people fall in love with their own stuff. Mm -hmm. So you have to say, what, what are we doing that's meaningful to our target customer? And do we even understand who our target customer really is, right? Because that's often what's missing as well. So once you get that lined up, you start realizing, okay, so, so marketing is going to help us shape the messages, the imagery, the, the the tools that need to be done. And in the day of digital marketing, they're also going to help drive uh, attention in the marketplace. And even depending how, how deep a stack or what kind of conversion process you're working, you're actually trying to get people into uh, the smaller pen of really interested, qualified uh, customers that now can enter into a sales process. So sales understands, okay, so now our end is we have to understand what that prospect who we're now engaging with, 
what have they been prepped with up till this point in time? So if I don't know what marketing is doing, I'm starting that conversation over again. But if I know what marketing is doing, I can presuppose, I can, I understand they've learned these things. They've gone through these steps uh, through our marketing process. So now I'm getting somebody who's really interested in talking about, okay, let's really understand how we can solve their problem. We can go into deeper conversations sooner, which builds trust, builds credibility. All those things happen now because I'm working together with marketing and it's built on what is the strategy. And the strategic questions really are, again, who do we serve? What are we doing for them that's important? How are we going to make money doing it? You have to resolve those things. You can give a lot of value away and, and you say, wow, we have incredible fans. They love what we're doing, but we're not making money. Well, you're not going to be viable for long. Or if you think it's all about, well, we're going to price what we're worth and you haven't established yet what really stands out for your prospect, well, that's also going to uh, fail. So yes, I think, Mike, you hit it, the nail right on the head. Strategy is the greatest place to, to bring all the parties together. And I would say even bring in other parts of your company, like operations, because they have to deliver, right? Whatever you promise. So you can come up with some real clever stuff, which is why I always tell clients, as much as I love, 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 and work with a lot of design firms, branding firms, and so on. So at some point, no one could do the heavy lift, but you of getting into the, like the weeds as to what you want to do in the market. And what you want to do should be driven by what your customers tell you they need from you. If you can solve people's problems and you solve it better, faster, cheaper, you know, whatever those various uh, you know, superlatives are, if you can do it better than, than, the, other, than the other guys, you will have an edge in their minds. But that's not the only reason people buy from you. So you do have to think through what is the sales experience going to look like? What is the marketing support going to look like? So you can have a great strategy uh, at ground level, but then you have to flow that strategy forward into, okay, how does this strategy inform what we do from a marketing point of view? How does this strategy inform what we do from a sales point of view? And how do those act activities work together in unison? It sounds heavy, but it really comes down to this, a couple of conversations, open lines of communication, and not thinking that you're done on January with your strategic plan, you put it in the binder and think that's gonna carry forward. You have to really build a culture of collaboration in those areas if you're gonna maintain the advantage as you move forward. That's, that's awesome, that, that culture of collaboration, I think is a, is a great message. So, so I, I can see, you know, you're talking to companies, you're, you know, getting them to get the sales and marketing teams interacting. So to put it very simply, I think it's making sure they know what the other one's doing so they can do their job better. But then what other mistakes do you see being made in terms of driving revenue growth? And I'm particularly interested because our audience is probably more marketing focused about what mistakes the marketing teams tend to make where they think they're helping sales and maybe they're actually doing the opposite and hindering. Yeah, I, th I think I'll reflect a little bit of a personal bias here, especially for people who are responsible for telling uh, a story that might be somewhat complex, you know, technology, industrial categories. These are all complex things to explain. And so as a result, uh, we sometimes in marketing want to put forth very comprehensive information. We want to make sure we have all the information necessary because after all, as you know, it's, it's an accepted truism now, uh, buyers 70% down the funnel before they even contact you. 
So that's all marketing, right? That, that first 70% is all the messages you did. And there's a truth to that. But I think the one, one of the things that I see people falling into a trap is two things. One is they, they take the complex thing they're selling and they communicate it in a complex way. So you just have a lot of complexity. It's just too much. You have to find a way to summarize it. You have to find a way to get top, you know, top level value, very simply stated, and then you support it with detail. Now, again, any marketer listening to this is going to say, well, duh. I mean, of course, that's what you're supposed to do. And I'm saying yes. And yet I, I, I look at Fortune one, you know, 500 companies marketing materials and I'm, they all violate this. And why is that? Often it's because you have different executives come in and say, well, oh, make sure you mention this and make sure this is included and this is really important and so on. And before you know it, you have, uh, you know, what they say is a camel is a, is a horse uh, developed by committee, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. You know, I, something like that, the, the pithy saying. But you get the idea. So, so you end up having too many hands trying to create messaging that often becomes way too complicated and therefore it's hard to use in sales situations. So you have to ask the fundamental question. Do we sell, if you're in marketing, and I'm answering strictly from that point of view, do we successfully sell without the intervention, the active participation of a sales professional? Some software companies, again, a lot of the, let's say, cloud-based offerings, basically may need somebody who can handle a half-hour call uh, you know, in, in a telecenter, but that's about as deep as it goes. Most of it's meant to be like, try it out for free, and then it's $19.99 a month or something like that. That world, you're marketing to a close. But if you're selling a piece of, let's say, enterprise software or an enterprise a piece of equipment like security, you know, uh, internet security, uh, special routers that cost, you know, $100,000, you know that your marketing efforts are going to still have to get handed off to a sales professional. Somebody has to actually have a set of meetings, has to manage the buying process, all of that's going to have to happen. So what you think about in terms of marketing collateral, materials, support, video, all of that should be in support. And this is where strategy comes in. If your strategy says, in the end, we have to close with a human being doing the closing, then your marketing has to be shaped very differently to support that effort. If on the other hand, you say, no, we close on the web, then you're doing almost more along the line. It, it feels much more like consumer selling or consumer marketing, but because you're actually getting somebody to say yes with their credit card online with almost no human interaction other than a very little level of support. So one, making a complex story too complex, and two, not really taking into account how the sale actually happens. And, and I think what, what feeds right after that, and, and it affects both those points, is also falling in love, just like uh, in sales, you could fall in love with your own technology and you want to tell people all about what you do. It, from a marketer's point of view, and cer certainly from a design and so on, is you design stuff that pleases you, that looks good, that's you know aesthetically, wow, we, we might win an award for this. It's incredible. <laughs> and yet your customers don't understand what the heck you do. And I can't tell you how many B2B sites I go to, you know, just regular routine work, go to a B2B site, they sell te uh, technology, they sell a, an industrial service, and they use things that are from consumer that try to appeal to the emotional uh, side of things. So it'd be something like, 
relief squared or so i'm making that up but just to make <laughs> point and, and you go what the heck is this you know what what is what does that mean and it turns out it's like a cpa firm that's automated you know work for industrial companies for example like say that say we're a cpa firm that focuses on industrial companies you know we you know making the work of auditing and tax filing be a pleasure as as opposed to a pain and i'm not saying that's great copy but i'm, I'm trying to make the point Make it simple, make it clear, and don't make don't use mysterious, uh, which you can do if you're selling Chanel, right? You, you get uh, Charlize Theron and she just walks into a room and it's Chanel, and that's great. You know, everybody gets it. But if you're selling a router, it you can't do that. It's not Chanel. It's a router. You have to talk about the thing in the category so people understand what category you're in. Yeah, no, absolutely. I see a lot of clients wanting to be apple or wanting to be another consumer brand and you know sometimes it's it's just not possible if you're a you know a very down-to-earth you know engineering company selling b2b yeah absolutely it's just it, it actually looks silly and yet many many people do it because again i mean just think about it people get into design careers and you know marketing careers and so on especially if they if they're doing it early in their career they did it because it's cool and they love looking at the stuff that looks great. And, you know, and, and everybody, I, I believe in aesthetics. I believe things should look well, should look properly designed and so on. I'm not saying everything should look like a brown paper bag. But in industrial categories in B2B, you have to be more on the nose, in my very strong opinion, um, because if not, people are just flipping through categories. They're flipping through pages and they won't know what you are. They won't understand kind of where you belong as a result, are you a consulting firm or are you a training firm? Those things have to be resolved very quickly so they can go to the next level of depth. And again, keep in mind, am I selling on the web or am I selling the idea of a consultation on the web that they should talk to somebody? Or am I actually not selling that at all? I'm actually having sales teams that are calling on people proactively. We're a big enough company. We do that all the time. And I need the website to support their field activity. It's not actually creating field activity for them. It's in support of it. Any of those things are valid strategies, but they have to be explicitly thought through up front so you can have success at doing it. Interesting. So just, just changing tack, I, I mean, one thing I noticed is um, you've actually written a book. And I, I'm interested to know how that's helped drive your business. How's that fitted into your um, customer's journey and helped them uh, help you get more customers? Yeah, a great question. So, uh, Mike, you know, I would love to say, and, you know, it was a, a global bestseller and I'm actually retiring off the royalties. <laughs> yeah. However, that's not why I wrote it and that's not how it's played out. But it, but but it has played out in a very important way for the business. And it's this two things. One, the writing of a book does cause you to consolidate and coalesce your own knowledge into what you really believe is true. And chances are most, if anyone listening to this is a, any kind of consultant or professional service person helping people for a period of time, they have a way of doing things. You have some standard PowerPoints, you have materials, you have your own constructs, models, et cetera. But when you have to document it and then you have to describe it in words, it really sharpens your game. So like the writing of the book sharpened my game. Even if I never published it, just the writing of it would have sharpened my game considerably because it made me 
clearer and crisper on what I did. In a particular case, the book is value props. So it's about writing and developing and thinking through value propositions for your company. So now the second thing it did is uh, it's from a, from a business development point of view, it's a great way when you meet somebody, instead of sending them a brochure, which you could spend a lot of money on a brochure, I sent them a copy of the book. And I've had people actually read, I, I had one client send me back an outline. Like they wrote, they read the whole book and they rendered it down to a four page outline and they wanted to talk about it. And it turned into a very healthy client engagement because they really got into it. The one thing that initially I had uh, some, you know, well-meaning people uh, suggest to me and, and they said, well, if you put out all your knowledge in a book, then why would people need to hire you? Yeah, it's a fair question. Well, first of all, I'd like to say that one book cannot capture all my knowledge, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's only it's only a little piece of my knowledge. But the, what happens is this, is when people go through it, and I try to make the book as, as useful and as user-friendly as possible, so people could actually apply the principles for themselves. But nine times out of 10, what happens is a person says, wow, whoever wrote this really knows this stuff, and this is the work we need. Let's contact them. And that's what happens. It actually establishes you as the expert. So in the time I've had the book, it's been out well over 10 years. Uh, it has absolutely helped my practice. I use it as, as part of the practice. It helps from a business development point of view. If I meet somebody who didn't find my book on Amazon, but instead met me uh, through other means, I still leave them a copy of the book or send them a book after the meeting. And it, it's much better than any brochure or business card. I mean, I have business cards, of course, but but that's just it, it's just very useful. So may have over answered your question there, Mike, but that I found it to be a, a great a great tool for my practice. I think that's a great answer. And it prompts an immediate follow up question. You know, we do see, particularly in the world of consultancy, lots of individuals writing books. Why do you think larger organizations don't follow the same approach and generate a book on, you know, the areas that they work in? Uh, well, probably a couple of some, some I mean, clearly some do depending on the kind of business they're in. But I think a lot of companies, if they're really tracking for growth, so let's say you're, you know, a hundred million dollar software company pushing to 200, for example, um, all hands on deck, just on that, on that job, writing a book is a thing. It's a big thing. And it, it probably more likely would come out of the CEO writing the book as part of their PR strategy. And it'll be on something where they want, where they end up becoming heroic. That's so a lot of CEO books are the CEO's personal journey. So, you, you know, starting with like a Jack Welch, formerly a GE and so on. So it's their journey and why they, you know, they just, they turned around the company and so on. And I think there's learning there. But rarely are those books methodological. They're not really designed to show you how to do something. So I think it's that's really it. I mean, it's it, when they do write a book, it's usually somewhat ego driven, and rarely is it for bigger companies is the book actually that helpful, other than that person's interesting story that might have some nuggets of wisdom that I could benefit from. Uh, that's an interesting point. I mean, we have. We have one client where the CEO and I think it was the head of HR wrote a book together. And I almost view it as a book they give 
potential new recruits because it talks a lot about the company and the culture and the way they that you know the philosophy behind they run it the way they run the company and to me that's that's awesome because you read the book and you go do you know what i want to work there or you might go actually that's not me and i think it's it's a a slightly different book than you know maybe you'd think but but i suspect it's been incredibly useful when they've been recruiting oh absolutely so it had you know if that's intentional that's the purpose for that book uh, and it would serve, uh, you know, that purpose. But again, I think for a lot of a lot of the big name people, the mm-hmm. book is really just an extension of their very big egos. And yeah. you know, and it's interesting. We've all read these different biographies and stuff. It's more like reading a biography of a famous person than this is how you should build your social network or this is how you should, you know, increase uh, your uh, the quality of your relationships. Those things tend to come out of the consulting world people who actually make a living helping people do this, that, or the other thing. And the book captures a piece of their knowledge and, and, and it establishes their, their credentials in their marketplace. Uh, but I think that would be the big difference between that and let's say the big company writing a book. No, absolutely. I think, yeah, sometimes the, the ego is the problem for sure. I, this has been amazing. I could go for ages, but you know, we've, we've hit our half an hour time limit. So, what else should we have covered? I mean, is there, there one or two things you want to just talk about before we finish? Well, Mike, I mean, simply is the, the value of a value proposition, right? So, and what a value proposition isn't, and I'll be very like 30 seconds to sync. Your value proposition is not your tagline. Your tagline is your tagline. Tagline is a reflection of your value prop, but it's not the value prop. Your value proposition is your statement of true truth as to what, you actually uh, do that's different and important for your best customers. When you understand that and you all get aligned with that in your organization, it purifies things. You know who you're going after, who you're trying to serve best. You understand why they should choose you because you know what you do best for them. Again, that competitive edge where you're better than their alternatives for doing either the status quo or choosing one of your competitors they rather choose you because, and if you can't answer that question, you don't have a strategy, you're not going to build an effective marketing plan, your sales efforts are just going to be muscle. You're going to muscle through sales situations, but it's never going to be easy. Get your value proposition right, and it magnetizes your offering for the right audience. And I'm not saying it's like then the money just ka-ching flows in like magic. Of course not. It, you're in competitive categories. It's hard business but you have a shot at standing out from the crowd. I, I love the idea that, I, and, and this is something maybe we should talk about again, is that the value proposition is as much used internally to find out who you should be selling to as it is to use to market and promote the company. I think that's that's a great idea around value propositions. Absolutely. Well, thank you. appreciate uh, coming from you, Mike. That means a lot. That That's amazing. So, I, I mean, Jose, you know, if people listening to this would like to find out more, what would be the best way for them to contact you? Uh, two ways. One is, uh, and we try to make it real easy. They can go to our website, which is valueprop.com. That's V as in Victor, A-L-U-E-P-R-O-P.com. So it's easy enough. And our podcast, our blog, and contact forms, uh, signing up for our Insider Weekly a newsletter, which is always really good content that comes out uh, every week that's helpful for anybody working with these things, all available at that site, valueprop.com. 
And I'm very uh, welcome somebody reaching out to me on LinkedIn. So it's Jose Palomino. Um, There aren't that many on LinkedIn. You'll find me the one with value prop and just drop me a line and happy to connect with anyone who I might be able to be uh, helpful for or just, you know, share a thought or two. It's amazing. It's incredibly generous. I mean, Jose, this has been fantastic. I feel we've, we've only touched a few topics, but it's been a great conversation. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. No, my pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for listening to Marketing B2B Tech. We hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you did, please make sure you subscribe on iTunes or on your favorite podcast application. If you'd like to know more, please visit our website at napierb2b.com or contact me directly on LinkedIn.